I'm excited to start a, a new year um, with all of you here at Stapleton Baptist, and I am excited about starting a new year hopeful about what God is going to do here. And, and more so than being hopeful, um, I want to go ahead and, and, and say I'm excited about what I am expecting God to do here. Um, I think we are all excited to see that. Um, so for the first Sunday in 2017, um, since we don't have church here this evening, I thought that I would take this morning and, and, and use um, the preaching time to issue a challenge uh, to Stapleton Baptist Church. And it's not so much a challenge um, to us as it is um, we're going to listen to the words of Jesus to another one of his churches and, and hear what he had to say to them that uh, I want us to see if it's applicable to us this morning. So, fair warning, um, we're going to a book today that can cause all kinds of um, just shenanigans in churches whenever it gets open because people like to go and do crazy things with it. Turn to the book of Revelation, please, um, and go to chapter 2. And I want to give a little bit of preamble before I start preaching from the book of Revelation that Revelation freaks a lot of people out. Um, it doesn't take long before you start studying Revelation, before people start making flowcharts and doing math and counting the number of letters in people's names, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and trying to identify which country does what to who and where that is on the prophetic calendar and trying to identify the beasts from the bottomless pit as Black Hawk helicopters and the smokes. as much. It gets crazy really quickly. Um, and, and I think all of that detracts from the main point of the book. Uh, the main point is really simple, and I can give it to you in two words. Jesus wins. That's the main point of the book of Revelation. There you go. Everything else serves that point. That if you understand the book of Revelation is meant to be encouragement to the church to remind us that in the end, no matter what else happens, Jesus has never lost control. He has never left his throne. He doesn't ever leave his throne even in the book of Revelation. He just relocates it. That's all he does. Jesus has never been out of control. He's never been out of authority. And the, John tells us in Revelation, hey, the world's going to get the worst it's possibly ever gotten. But guess what? Jesus is still in control, and Jesus still wins. So don't, don't worry, church. Um, that's, the, that's the point of the book of Revelation. That being said, the book of Revelation is kind of an entity in and of itself. Um, there is some history in it. There is some epistle in it, just a letter to people right there currently. There is a ton of prophecy in it. There is a ton of metaphor in it. Um, that there are some things in Revelation that are not intended to be taken literally. There are some things in Revelation that are very much intended to be taken literally. But the passage we're covering today is pretty cut and dry. We're going to be in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, and we are going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Now, I do want you to notice, um, if you've got a red letter Bible, you don't have to, but it's obvious who's talking if you've got a Bible who's got the words of Christ in red letters. If you don't have a red letter Bible, this is Jesus talking. 
So just to throw that out there before we start. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to his church. Um, Lord, we pray that we hear your words this morning, and we would learn from them, and we would take them to heart, and we would hear what the Spirit has said to the churches. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, as to what is going on right now, um, I, I want us to look this morning and see three truths about the way Jesus deals with his church. And three truths about the way Jesus deals with his church is, um, plural. Um, we, we believe that there is one unified church with a capital C. Everyone from all time who has ever placed their faith in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ is a member of the church with a capital C. The, the, the church worldwide. Um, but inside the church with a capital C, there are little churches of which we are one of them. And Jesus, in this passage in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, is addressing a particular local body in the city of Ephesus. Now, there have been some interpreters who take, and they tend to see all of Revelation as this big book of, pro of nothing but prophecy. Everything is prophetic and has to do with the future. Uh, the only problem with that is in the text, there's no reason to do that. They'll take this text and they'll say, okay, there's seven letters to the churches, and this letter is the church in this age, and this letter is the church in this age. And No, take the, the, make the plain thing the main thing. Jesus said this is to the church that's in Ephesus, so this letter was directed to the church that was in Ephesus. Uh, this is the same church that got the letter of Ephesians. This is the same church that is mentioned several times throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus, how would y'all feel if one day, you know, an apostle walked in and said, I had a letter to you, Stapleton, directly from Jesus himself. This is what he has to say to you about how you're being the church in the city of Ephesus. Well, that's literally what happened to the people in Ephesus, is that when the book of Revelation got to them, after it was penned by John, John said, hey, Ephesus, I have a message from headquarters directly to you that Jesus has been watching you and he has some things he wants to say. 
So that's what we're digging into this morning. And first thing we're going to see is Jesus acknowledges the good in his churches. And that should be encouraging to us at Stapleton. First, let's, let's just start in verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, Welcome to the first weirdness of Revelation. Um, what is the, who is the angel of the church of Ephesus? Does every church have specific guardian angels that watch over it? That are circle? I wouldn't be shocked if they do. Um, I would not be shocked if God did not have some of his military force guarding Stapleton Baptist. I would not be surprised. However, I do not think that's what's going on right here. Uh, angel, in its, in its most basic sense, means messenger. Uh, it means the, the one sent by God um, to, uh, with a specific task. Um, and based on what else is going on here in this text, this is most likely the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This is most likely one of the elders, the one who is responsible for the care of this church. So this letter is written to the church of Ephesus, but you can imagine it says care of the pastor. So this was really fun for me to study because yes, this is we as a church are responsible for what Jesus is going to talk about today, but guess who the letter would be addressed to? This guy. <laughs> So, yes, it's important for y'all, but my ears better be especially perked up. Um, and and uh, who are, you know, what is this going on? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, welcome to the twilight zone. What's going on? Who's speaking? Go back to Revelation 1 verse 13. You, you may not even have to flip a page. I didn't put this in your handout because this is right next to where we are. Verse 13, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, and as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." Who are we talking about? We're talking about the resurrected, risen, transfigured Jesus. This is who is speaking. This is, last week we spent time talking about little baby Jesus in the manger. This is Jesus that when you see him, you fall on your face as a dead man. This is him from whom the heavens and the earth fled. They're terrified of him because he is the all-powerful risen Lord. This is who John is speaking to. This is who, or rather, who is speaking to John. And what is the, what are the, the stars in the, the lampstands? What's going on here? Well, thankfully, uh, this is explained to us uh, in verse 20 of this, of the first chapter. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So the one holding the stars in his right hand, if the, the angels of the churches are the pastors, then what's happening here is John is seeing Jesus, and he's seeing an image of Jesus is 
talking to these pastors, but these pastors aren't just out there on their own. Where are these pastors? They're in the right hand of Jesus. That he's got them. Guys, I'm about to talk to you, but I'm not just throwing you out there on your own. I've got you. That makes your pastor feel real good. Okay? That Jesus is going to say some serious stuff, but in the midst of all this, he's, he's, he's got them. I'm here. I've got you. Second, what are the lampstands? They're the seven churches, and he's walking amongst them. Church, Jesus walks amongst his churches. He's not like some clockmaker who just winds his church up and says, now y'all go. No, he's in the midst of us. He stays with us. He's never left us and he's never going to. He walks among the midst of his churches. And another interesting thing that I, I thought about, you know, in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see words that says, you know, I will leave a lamp for David. You know, a land holding. I'll leave a territory. You know, Jesus thinks of the churches. You know, this is, well, everything's his territory. But it's just interesting to me that he uses a lampstand, all the imagery that goes along with that. Something that gives light in a dark place. Something that represents an outpost. That this is a specific territory. That a church, it, they, John uses lampstands here. That's what John sees the churches as, as he's having this vision. Is that you see Jesus walking amongst his churches, holding their pastors in his right hand. That this is what starts the beginning of this letter. And that's how Jesus introduces himself. I'm the one walking amongst you who has your pastors in my hand. That's who's speaking. Now here's what he has to say in verse 2. I know your works. Oh boy. That's always fun when Jesus starts a sentence with, I know your works. Now we as Christians, if we've come to Jesus... We already know this. That's one of the reasons that we came to Jesus is because the Holy Spirit convicted us, God knows your works. And that's terrifying. But then the second half of the gospel is, and he loves you anyway and has provided a way for those to be forgiven. That God knows your works. But if we're not careful, we can live our Christian life and we can forget that first truth that made us realize our need for Jesus in the first place. That Jesus still knows our works. He knew your sinful works when he offered to save you and when you accepted that if you're a Christian. But once you're saved, it's not like Jesus goes, okay, they're good, and just doesn't look anymore. He knows our works. He knows what we're doing that we shouldn't be, and he knows what we're not doing that we should be. He says, I know your works, but fortunately everything that he's about to list in this next little section, this is all good stuff. Um, I read one commentator who put it this way. He said, if you're a pastoral search candidate, like if you're looking for a church, and this is and what you see when you evaluate whether or not it's a church you want to go to, if you see all the things in this section, you would think, this is where I want to go. Like, this is a beautiful, 
healthy, wonderful church. This is where I want to be. Let's look at some of this stuff. I know your works, your labor. This word's literally your, your, your um, uh, well, first your works is the deeds, the things that you do, but I know your labor. This Greek word means to work hard or grow weary. This is not just, we're doing basic church stuff that's just kind of routine. It's, it doesn't, no. This word means specifically things that wear you out. Hard work. This is the work that makes you spiritually sweat. This church is willing to do hard things, to do uncomfortable things, to push themselves, to not stay where their faith is easy. They take themselves into places where it stretches them. They do hard work. Stapleton, are you willing to do hard work? To serve when it inconveniences you. You want to know what drives me nuts just personally? And it works best when people don't know I'm a pastor. Because then they'll just say it. Um, uh, that, that's a pro tip for anybody who God's ever going to call you into ministry. Sometimes wait to drop that you're a pastor. Because people won't say things if they know you're a pastor. But... When folks say, you know what, I went to that church, I'm just not going to go back because I just didn't get much out of it. Really? So that church exists for you. That church exists for you to get something out of it. I'm fine calling a church service a church service as long as we serving the right person and it's not like a garage that you go into to receive service. We don't come here in order to be served. We come here in order to serve. That the service is not toward us, and it's not for us to get everything out of it. It is for us to pour ourselves out to serve. This is about Jesus. This is about his mission. Well, I didn't get fed. Are you a baby? Babies get fed. Now, this is food. Yes, this is real spiritual food, but Paul lamented over and over and over again to different churches, you're behaving like babies. You still need milk when you need solid food. And most of the time, if you see an adult, you know, putting their fork in solid food and then handing it to someone else and saying, feed me, you'd say something's wrong. That we need to be mature, we need to take the word, and, and yes, I'm to provide it to you from behind the sacred desk, and I labor to do so. But the hard work is, do, do we study our Bibles? Do we, are we Berean? Do we check it out for ourselves? Do we examine our own doctrine? Do we do difficult things? Do we inconvenience ourselves and serve in ways that make us tired? Well, it's difficult for me to serve that day because that's my, you know, that's, that I don't, I, you know, it, it's, it stresses me out to do those things. And, you know, I, it make, 
hard things. Are you willing to do hard things? Jesus says, I know your works, I know your labor. The things that you do that make you tired, that make you grow weary. Your patience. Hello. Stapleton, are we patient? Patience in, in what regard? Uh, to endure, to wait expectantly. Uh, I didn't put this on your handout, but I compared this, the first verse that popped into my mind when I read this about patience was Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Um, I'll read that to you because I compare that to these people who say, um, or starting in verse 3, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That you hear the message of Jesus, and it sounds real good to begin with, but then you're asked to endure, and to endure, and to endure, and to endure, and to put up with, 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 and, and deal with it, and deal with it, and deal with it, and deal with it. And you eventually hit that moment where you go, well, Jesus, you said you're coming back. Why not just do it? The world is frankly annoying. They don't, it doesn't work the way it should. People get on my nerves. My body's falling apart. My finances are in shambles. Everybody hates us. If you're going to come back, why not just do it? And if you don't look out, that can discourage you and you can lose your patience. You can just hang it up. It's like, well, it was good while it lasted, but I just got to take care of me. This whole, this whole faithfulness thing, this whole patience thing, Jesus is commending this church because he said, church in Ephesus, I see that you're patient. And y'all, Ephesus was crazy. Ephesus, if Corinth was Las Vegas, Ephesus was New York. And if y'all were watching... If y'all were watching, you know, the New Year's Eve stuff on TV last night, y'all, New York is big. Okay, it's, it's huge. You can go back and you can look in Acts and uh, just, I, I looked in chapter, uh, in chapter uh, um, 19, you can, you can read about a riot in Ephesus where uh, they're stirring up all of the, all of the, the Romans in Ephesus because uh, there's a giant temple of uh, Diana in Ephesus. It, it was a massive center of worship and of trade. It was a metroplex that could have had anywhere between 200 and 250,000 people, which in the ancient world was massive. Um, <coughs> it was not the most conducive place to Christianity, but this church is enduring in the midst of the center of the worship of a pagan god. And Jesus says, I see you. I see that you're enduring in a culture that is hostile to you, that disagrees with what you believe about what I've said, that disagrees with what I hold dear, and that you imitate me in holding it dear as well. I see that you are patient and enduring there. Is this getting a little bit more relevant? You know, Ephesus is nothing compared to the city's even in our state of Georgia, 
Atlanta would have dwarfed Ephesus. Ephesus would have looked like a small suburb to Atlanta. And that's not even comparing cities bigger than Atlanta in our nation. And would you agree with me that our culture is increasingly hostile to the faith? Yes, it is. The good news is Jesus says, I see your patience. I see that you endure. I know. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. This word is more than just these people get on my nerves. It's, it's, it's the word for something to, to pick up, that you can't handle it. It's literally too much for these people to handle. That evil amongst themselves is the one thing they will not put up with. They will not tolerate sin in the camp. And Jesus treats this as a good thing. He says, you cannot bear those who are evil. If you want to go see how frustrating it is to the Apostle Paul when people put up with evil, go read 1 Corinthians. Paul rebuked the church and said, some of the stuff you put up with is a shame to you that you tolerate this. And Jesus goes to the church at Ephesus and says, I see that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you will not tolerate it. And he says that's a good thing. You know, that's hard in a world where tolerance is like the chief virtue. Jesus says in this case, being intolerant is a good thing, that we will not accept evil in our midst. We won't do it. And then this next part, uh, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. This is the same word that's often used when the Pharisees and the Sadducees test Jesus. It means to demand proof that someone is who they say they are. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejected an abundance of proof that Jesus was telling the truth. That was their error. What Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus for is not blindly accepting the word of someone who just shows up saying they're an apostle. They put them, they put them to the test. Oh, you want to show up and tell us you have a message for us from God that God is speaking through you. Okay, we're going to sit you down and grill you and make sure that you're not lying to us for personal gain. Now, that's pretty stressful. You know, when so, I was very, very, very thankful. That was a sign of the health of this church. When the pastor search committee came to me and they said, explain your doctrine on bam, 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 bam. And I was like, yes! They're asking questions. It's not just, has God called you to preach? Yes. Cool. Come on. No. No, 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 no. Jesus says, you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not. And what did you do? And you found them liars. And called a spade a spade. That there wasn't any of this, well, yeah, they're, they're a nice person, and some of what they say is good, so you just got to be really careful. No! Get them out of the library. Don't let them behind your pulpit. Don't play them on your radio. Don't let them, you know, flip the television away from TBN. You know, don't, don't, did I say that? Don't watch them. Don't listen to them. 
if, the, if they are a heretic, call them a heretic. Don't listen to them. Don't let them in. Don't let them influence your doctrine. Don't let them mess with your belief. Don't. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for saying, you tested them, they failed, and you called a spade a spade. You don't let them get in there with you. These are all things that Jesus said was good. Now, verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience. This is the same word as what they could not do with evil. Long story short, they can put up with anything except for evil in their midst. Persecution, sure, we'll take it. Bring it on. What about money troubles? We'll live through it. People lying about us in public? Yeah, there's nothing new about that. They just took it and rolled with it. That they were they were persevering in their patience. That they, they didn't just have a short fuse, that they could bear with everything except for evil in their midst. That they could not tolerate. And also, you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They're diligent. That they don't just do hard things occasionally. It's not like they call a business meeting and then somebody suggests to them, uh, somebody suggests doing something difficult and the, the chairman of deacons at Ephesus stands up and says, well, you know, we did a difficult thing three months ago. Um, let's take a break for a while and then we'll revisit this next year. We're exhausted. Jesus said, no, you continue in your labor. You work and you keep working and you're exhausted, but you know what? You're not working in your own strength anyway. That's why you keep on going. They labor and they stay diligent in their labor. What's your application? Jesus sees all of this. Stapleton, when you struggle and you fight and you push and you labor and you sweat and you bleed and you're saying, what's the point? Jesus is saying, I see you. I know that you're working. Jesus is not blind. You're not just spinning your wheels. An example of this is evangelism. You were commanded to go and share the gospel, not to convert people. You can't convert somebody. Your obedience is accomplished when you share the gospel with somebody. What they do with it, that's on them. And if you share the gospel and 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 nobody responds, do you know how upset Jesus is going to be with you? Enough to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you're not commanded to convert, you're commanded to obey. You're not spinning your wheels when you're working and you're laboring and you're not you may you may be like Abraham and work and toil your entire life and, and, and go to be with Jesus and not see any of the fruits of the labors of your life on this earth. You may never see that, but that does not mean that the promise of God is null and void. That does not mean that. God sees your labor, Stapleton Baptist Church. Now, quick, quick caveat here. If you're not saved, I'm not standing up here and tell you to work so that God will see it and he'll like you. That's not what I'm doing. 
if you lost and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you can be sure God sees your work all right. Just not the way you want him to. You don't get, you don't get saving credit for your work. This is Jesus talking to his church. They've already placed their faith in him, and he's talking to them about their obedience. If you're lost, you don't need to work harder. You need to place faith in Jesus. That's what you need. You don't even worry about your works. Your works are the problem, if that's the case. You need to trust Jesus so he can forgive you of your work so you can go to work. That's, that's what you need for you. So there you go. If you're lost, there you go. And I just want, I'll throw this out there, Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And listen to some of this. This is very similar to what Jesus says. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you see the similarities? Where the author of Hebrews is telling us that God is not unjust to forget our work and our labor of love. But in there is the rub. Labor of what? Love. Now we get to the problem of the church of Ephesus. That Jesus sees the good. He acknowledges the good in his churches. But Jesus also rebukes the bad in his churches. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. If you're a Christian and you ever hear Jesus say this, you better stop everything else you're doing and pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. Because you don't ever want Jesus to say, I've got something against you. We don't ever want that. But Jesus says it. Nevertheless, I have this against you. What? That you have left your first love. What does this mean? Uh, Paige Patterson says this in his commentary on Revelation. The problem in interpreting this verse is partly due to the fact that unlike many other common, uh, commendations or condemnations of chapters 2 and 3, there is no known historical precedent in the city or church at Ephesus for this illusion. So commentators have felt the necessity to speculate. We don't have any historical data that specifically says, what does Jesus mean when, when he says this church has lost their first love? So he goes on to say that some scholars think maybe Jesus is talking about losing love for the brethren, losing love for each other. Maybe Jesus, maybe, uh, maybe Jesus is saying you've lost love for me and they'll treat like one or the other. Your pastor doesn't think it has to be one or the other. I think if you lose love for the brethren, that's proof that you've lost love for Jesus. If you lose love for Jesus... You've lost love for the brethren. Go read 1 John. The two go hand in hand. If you lose love for, for Jesus, you'll lose love for the people Jesus died for. If you lose love for the people Jesus died for, that's evidence you've lost love for Jesus. So what do I think John is talking about when he says you've lost your first love? These people on the outside, or, or at least by the letter, they're ridiculously obedient. But this would be like, which I can't do this anymore because we have cats and they would destroy them. This would be like if I bought flowers and came home to Emily 
for our anniversary and knocked on the door uh, after I picked them up. And Emily's like, oh, honey, those flowers are beautiful. I love them. They're gorgeous. What's the occasion? And I said, it's our anniversary. And I know that as a husband, I'm obligated to give you some gift for our anniversary. These are your favorite flowers. So I went and bought a dozen of them and have brought them home to satisfy the requirement to give you a gift for our anniversary. Here you go. They would never enter the house because the door would be slammed in my face and, and it would not go over well. Whereas, how differently would it go if I went and bought the exact same flowers from the exact same florist in the exact same wrapper and brought them home and Emily opened the door and she said, oh honey, they're beautiful. What's the occasion? And I said, I love you. And I, I knew these were your favorite flowers and I wanted to do something that I knew would make you happy. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, that it would be a totally different, but if you, if you were to watch the situation and hit the mute button and you didn't hear what I said, you wouldn't see much of a difference until the door hit me in the face. But the flowers are the same. The action is the same. Where I went is the same. But the motivation was different. One is out of obligation. The other is out of love. The motivation makes the action totally and completely different. And Jesus' rebuke to the church of Ephesus is according to the letter. According to the letter, you are doing everything the right way. But your motivation is wrong. And it just hit me. It's really interesting that if you go to the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, what is it that he has to get on them about? You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. Ephesus, you got all the actions right. You've got all the, the, the specifics correct. You're doing all the things you need to do, but it is cold, dead legalism to you. There is no love in anything you're doing. <clears throat> Stapleton, is that us? This is not an accusation. This is not your pastor saying, because I can't get in your heart. I don't know if you're a Sunday school teacher who's doing it out of obligation. I don't know if you're serving in some other capacity. That I, don't, I don't know if you're a deacon who's doing it because you feel like you need to. I don't know if you're serving in the nursery because you feel obligated to. I, I don't know. I can't see inside your hearts. I don't have a single accusation to level at a single person in this church. I just want to challenge each of us individually, take Jesus' words at face value and don't shrug them off. Are you doing it out of obligation or are you doing it out of love? Why, why are you serving? Why are you here this morning? 
Are you here this morning because you've got to check your box off? Well, I, I went to church on Sunday morning. I did my part. Did your part of what? You think God's sitting up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering whether or not you're going to be here? Oh, my gosh, I can't control. The, I can't, the cosmos is going to fall apart if they are not at church this morning. What am I going to do? No. God's in heaven perpetually glorified by eternities of angels. They sing better than we do. That's not a knock on anybody in here singing, by the way. God, God doesn't need our worship. But do you want to worship Him? Do you love Him? Are you motivated by love or are you motivated by obligation? Have you lost your first love? Listen to this. If you think you're obeying all the rules correctly, Mark 12, 29-31, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So if you do all the other commandments, but you lose love, you failed in the top two. Love. Then what about this? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love. Do you love Jesus and do you love the people Jesus loves? Or are you serving? Are you here out of obligation? Because if you're here out of obligation, you have a home in these seven verses in the church of Ephesus that Jesus is cautioning us. And what does he have to say about it? Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Do y'all remember what it was like when you first got saved? For some of us, that's been a while. But you remember, I remember when I got forgiven. I remember when it was all new. I remember when I was telling everybody, I got saved, I'm a member of a church. And some of us, our friends are like, eh. Okay. And then your life started looking different. You started hanging with different people and doing different stuff and liking different things, and it was great, and then it became normal. Then you forgot what it was like to be lost. And instead of looking at lost people, you... And going, hmm, I remember when that used to be me. That, that, I, I need to go talk to them. You look, at the, you look at them now and you go, I can't believe they would do that. We were there. That was us. Remember, Jesus' remedy for this. Remember. 
Go back. We like to go back to Calvary in history and sing about it, but we don't like to go back to Calvary in our own hearts. Remember from where you've fallen. And then he said, he, Jesus says, remember. Then he says, repent and do the first works. What, what are the first works? They're associated with your first love. What was it like when you first got saved? Do you remember all the stuff you did then? Live that way now. Be excited about obedience that way now. Share the gospel that way now. Love Jesus that way now. Love your church that way now. Love your brothers and sisters that way now. Remember, repent, and do the first works or else. Oh boy, this is a western now. Or else. What did he do? Jesus said, or else I will come to you quickly. We spend most of our Christian lives saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, we want you here as soon as possible. I like this, you don't. This is not that kind of return Jesus is talking about. Jesus says, I will come to you quickly. This is when mama says, don't make me come over there. Don't you make me come in there. One, two. This is what Jesus is doing. And then what does he threaten the church with? Or rather, what does he promise? Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Translate this into layman's terms. If you continue on in dead legalism, in lovelessness, in lovelessness toward me, and in lovelessness toward your, toward your brethren, I will let your church die. You know where the church in Ephesus is today? Dead. The area has been uninhabited since about the 14th century. The city began to decline in the 5th. The church with it. Jesus said you can be legalistically obedient. You can follow all the rules. You can have all the right programs. You can fill out all the right forms. You can sing all the right songs. You can have all the neat ministries. But if you're loveless, I will let your church die. And history proves he's serious. The church at Ephesus is gone. But then he adds this on the end, unless you repent. There's a way out. Doesn't have to be this way. You can repent. You can come back to your first love. You can live that way again. Stapleton. We can love again. Here's your homework. Go home and think about Jesus. Think about what he's done for you. Think about the lengths he went to to save you. Think about the cross. And fall in love with that again. Unless you repent. I want this lampstand here to be burning for a long time. Unless you repent. But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
We do not know historically exactly who the Nicolaitans are, but you can reference this back to uh, what Jesus said earlier when he said, you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. Um, interestingly enough, um, I'm sitting here wondering why uh, this is inserted right here. The beginning of the word Nico uh, in Nicolaitans is the word for overcome, which leads us right into our last point. So the Nicolaitans are false overcomers. But what about verse 3? Or, or verse 7, rather, point 3, that Jesus offers his church as hope. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear? Yes, okay, this is to you. Jesus says, if you can hear me, you need to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who, Nikon, Nico, same as the beginning of Nicolaitans. If the Nicolaitans are the fake overcomers, these are the real overcomers. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What kind of, what kind of uh, overcoming are we talking about? If you go look at Revelation 12, 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That their love is in the right place. That they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved Jesus more than they loved their own lives. There's hope, Stapleton. That we can return, we can love again, we can turn back to Jesus and remember what it was like when we were first saved. We can remember what it's like to be a growing, thriving, happy Christian rather than to trudge around in drudgery going, I'm doing what I've got to do. No, 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 no. That'll lead to a dead church. Don't do it. Don't do it. Me too. The letter was addressed to the pastors, if anybody ought to be listening. I don't think the command, hey, love me again. Love each other again. It's not a controversial command. Stapleton, do you love Jesus? Do you love each other? And is that the motivation for what we do here? Here's your, here's your challenge. Here's a practical way for you to apply this. The next time you do anything of service in this church, ask yourself, why am I doing this? If the answer is anything other than, I'm doing this because I love Jesus and because I love this church. Then maybe what you need is you need some reflection on what Jesus has done for you on Calvary. On how long he's walked with you. Think about his patience with us. And if you're in here today and you don't know Jesus and you're going, 
wait, so I can follow all the rules, and if I don't love Jesus and love these other people in this building, God doesn't care? Yep. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because the, the problem with what you just asked was the very beginning of that sentence. So you're telling me if I follow all these rules, you can't. You can't. Well, I try and live a good life. Yeah, you're failing. I try and always do right by everybody. Does that include Jesus? Well, I ain't never killed nobody. Does that include Jesus? What you need is not to do the first works. Because if you're lost, you were conceived in sin. You ain't never been good. You ain't never going to be good unless Jesus gets a hold of you and gives you his goodness. And you can have that today. All you have to do is repent. Trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He will take your sin on himself. It will have been crucified with him, and he will give you his righteousness. Then you can experience being a new Christian from the very beginning. You can have that joy. You can have that peace. And then you can take this and you can say, after what I heard today, I know I'm supposed to never get over it. Don't ever get over it. Stapleton, love again. Stapleton, lost folks, be loved by Jesus. Trust Christ. Preston's going to lead us in a couple of verses. If you, if you need to be forgiven, if you need to give your life to Christ, you, I'll be glad to talk with you about that. Come on up front. I'll pray with you. We can set up a time. We can talk after the service. We can talk later. Um, I, I want to have more of a conversation with you than I can in the 10 or 15 seconds. You'll probably feel comfortable having up here. You can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin, put it in the offering plate when it comes by. I will follow up with you. Meet me at the back door. You've got all kinds of options. Just don't leave here today without talking to somebody about knowing Jesus if you know you need to. I'm going to pray. Preston, you come. Father, um, thank you so much um, for another year, for another opportunity to obey. That Our opportunities to obey are limited um, based on the fact that we are mortal. We have limited time. Father, help us to make the best of those, but help us to be way more concerned with love than we are with, with a list of do's and don'ts. Because if we love you, what we're supposed to do will take care of itself. Um, Father, if there's anybody in here who's lost, Lord, I pray that you would just expose them to the love that you have for them so that they would repent of their sins and they would trust you and they would find new life in you. In Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. 75, I gave my life for thee.